just thinking about the end of this last week, it was a, a kind of a strange progression of, of thoughts and feelings and events. And, and at the end of this past week, on Thursday, uh, we were asking one another, is it Yanni or Laurel? Or some of you were, if you don't know, good for you. Um, and it was Yanni, but uh, on Friday, this total tragic turn, we were grieving as a nation, uh, another mass shooting at Santa Fe High School outside of Galveston, Texas. And then yesterday morning, on Saturday morning, we, or you, I was not, uh, but many were absorbed in all of the royal wedding hoopla. So you have this strangeness, sadness, to gladness in just a few days. And and that's just on kind of a, a, a national, international level. But, but life is more than viral videos and, and national tragedies and royal spectacles. Uh, this is not the only realm in which you've been living over the last three days or the last week. You, you have had your own ups and downs this week, no doubt. You carry in here joys and sorrows and questions and doubts and hurts and hopes and fears. You bring those in here on this Lord's Day. And, and in God's wisdom, we come together each Lord's Day, and Jim was kind of alluding to this, kind of for, for, for kind of reset. Yet, yes, we read our Bibles during the week and we hear from God as He speaks to us through His Word. And we, we talk to God in prayer and we gather with one another and one-on-one and in smaller groups of, of brothers and sisters in Christ. But this assembly and God's design this on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, His design is that we come together and it's a critical means that He uses to recenter us on Christ. This is his, this is his wisdom. We bring our ups and our downs here and we, and we, and we get to come together and we sort of regain spiritual equilibrium. And on the Lord's Day, this is what we do. All the confusions and complications of life, they, 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 here, they're lovingly and directly confronted with the simplicity and the declarative nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what, we do. And so these two verses, God's willing, God, God willing, I, I pray will help in that process of just recalibrating us, recentering us on Jesus. It's, it's easy to overcomplicate, um, the, the simple faith to which we've been called. It's not a simplistic faith, but it's a simple faith. And uh, just thinking in light of the wedding yesterday, that you, the, the moment of marriage is very simple, really. I mean, it's exchanging of vows or what actually makes a, per, makes a couple, husband and wife, it, you could do it in about a minute. But we had hours of coverage of a royal wedding, and, and understandably, but that simple moment is, was sort of dwarfed and eclipsed by all the pomp and the pageantry that comes with a, with a royal wedding as all the world was watching and, and all the commentators and there's, there's live coverage. It was bizarre to even listen to. Uh, you know, I, when I, after the pastor gave the message, you know, immediately the commentators are talking about it. And I was joking to Callie. I was like, what if that happened on Sunday mornings at our church? You know, like, as soon as I said amen and you guys started this live commentary. Uh, don't, I please. But, um, but, but one of the things I love about Peter is that he, he 
he boils things down to us for us. And we've, we've seen this in this letter already. He writes to these people whose worlds seem to just be kind of spinning out of control. These people are facing great opposition and ostracism and, and, and difficulties for, because of their, their faith in Christ and devotion to him and identification with him. And so their, their lives seem to be hectic and chaotic. And he writes to them and he, he gives them this deep truth, but he, but he gives it to them with such simple clarity. And I, I love that. It's beautifully simple. So what's, what's the Christian life about in, as we live in this world and we're opposed and we're facing difficulties? What is it about? And Peter says, here it is, plainly. <laughs> and so this is one of those passages. These, these verses are considered by, by many commentators to be sort of the epicenter of First Peter, not because they're the most quoted or anything like that, but because, in a sense, they summarize everything Peter has said up to this point and they lay the foundation for everything that he's going to say in this letter. So we have another one of these kind of turning points in this letter, maybe the, the very center of the letter. And so let me just read the text again. It's just two verses. And so with that in mind, he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what a, sum, what a wonderful summary of the life that God has called you and me to. Our lives can be described in three ways as we look at this text. And I'm uh, giving them all starting with S here. But we're, we're sojourners, we're soldiers, and we're spokespersons. Sojourners, spoke, soldiers, and spokespersons. But even we get, before we get to the outline there, first word, verse 11, beloved. And I, I was thinking about this even as we were singing it. But, but don't, don't just skip over that. It roots these exhortations, these commands in the gospel. And so Peter uses beloved to address his readers. One, to assure them of his great love for these people. But it's more than that. This goes beyond Peter's love as a human being for these Christians, and it reminds them, and it reminds us of God's love for them, God's love for us. And again, this is why I think tying it to everything we've seen in this letter so far, that he, yes, yes, you're you're alienated, you're scattered in the world, you're you're ostracized by the world around you, but you are the special objects of God's redeeming love in Jesus Christ. You are beloved, brothers and sisters. This is what he's reminding them of. All of Peter's exhortations, commands, they, they have these pilings that go all the way down to the bedrock of God's love. And, and, and it's the great motive that, that enables us to endure all kinds of afflictions, all kinds of opposition, all kinds of persecution and difficulties as we live as pilgrims in this world. This is what we're saying. I will build my life Upon your love. It is my sure foundation. And this is what Peter's saying from the, from the outset. So cement that in your heart, friends. The, the, the unfathomable love of God as shown to us by Christ's death on the cross is to be and is the driving motivation of the Christian life. And it's more than a motivation. I don't just mean that it's just kind of an example or something that that pushes us, but it is, it is the whole reason that we're enabled to do these things. 
The only way we can live the life Christ has called us to. All right, so back up. We see the things boil down, and we'll make three statements here that summarize these two verses here. First one is this. Live like sojourners in a foreign land. Live like sojourners in a foreign land. So he says in verse 11 again, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. We recognize those words from, if you've been with us from the beginning in First Peter here, but you know, sojourner is not a common word that we use in modern English today. The, some of your translations may say pilgrims, and we, we get that word as Americans, but even that we think of kind of like quaint folks wearing you know, broad-rimmed hats and you know, turkey dinner, people that came on the Mayflower, so... So even that kind of, it's not a word we use in conversation often, but, but a sojourner or a pilgrim is, is a word Peter uses throughout this letter to describe the very essence of the Christian life. You are, you are sojourners. You are pilgrims. You are exiles. This is a theme, again, we already know in First Peter. We are, what, what's an exile? That, let's start there. Exile, it's somebody who's living in a place that's not his home. So we're... We're, we're living elsewhere, and a sojourner, someone who's on a journey, on a pilgrimage, moving toward a destination through another land. And so that's the idea. So together, these words describe someone who's a, who's a temporary resident, who's passing through, he's a traveler in a foreign country. He's passing through on his way to his home country. And so an exile as a, or a sojourner would would therefore have a very different view of life than, um, than a native, than a, than a native citizen, a permanent citizen of that land. You can see that. And so these, again, together, these words, they capture um, the way that you and I to, are to understand who we are and what we're to be doing in this present world. That's, that's what we see. It, it makes no sense to talk about being an exile or being a sojourner unless you understand and you embrace the idea and the reality of eternity. You have to understand and, 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 and believe that concept. If you believe there's no, if, if you believe there's such a thing as forever, if you believe that we're moving toward this future eternal destiny, that there's a home, that this is not our final home, but there is a home that's coming. If you, if you believe those things, then that changes everything in life for us. And this is why he uses this language. And materialism and pleasure-seeking and kind of comfort-drivenness that is so prevalent in our world, it, it makes perfect sense if you don't believe and you don't embrace eternity. If this is all that there is, then, then what is life about? Well, it's about squeezing as much comfort and pleasure and happiness as you can possibly get out of this brief moment. Because that's it. That's all there is. And if we're honest, we can, we can find that way of thinking creep into, it can creep into our own hearts, even as Christians. The dominant view of Christianity today, particularly in the West, is is focused on here and now. I mean, even as the way people think about church and, 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 and being part of the body of Christ and coming here on Sundays, it, the questions that, that dominate our minds as people are looking for a church it's, is what will this do for my marriage right now? Um, how will this help me raise my kids? How will this help me succeed in my career? How will this help me overcome some personal problems I'm dealing with? How will this help me feel fulfilled as a person? Again, those are not unimportant questions, but they're not ultimate questions. 
So most Christians, we, we can find this tendency to just simply live for here, for now, and to enjoy life now, and to cling to it with everything we have for as long as we possibly can. And we see that. They, we don't see death as a, as a gateway to everything that we've really been living for. We see it as something that's to be put off and postponed and to be avoided at all costs. And we're not, we don't see ourselves as sojourners, as exiles, as pilgrims. But that's, that's what we are. And confessionally, convictionally, we, we do believe in eternity. And so we, we need to live like this. And so this is Peter's writing them as exiles, as sojourners. Don't, don't forget this, this perspective that you need. This heaven-mindedness is to be eternally mindful. We, we, we do not believe that today is a destination. We believe that this moment is preparation for our final destination. And so we live as exiles. We live as strangers. We live as sojourners. We understand that God is moving us to our, to our final home. And He's using everything we face in this life to prepare us for that future final place where we'll be forever now again if if you get that then that makes for very countercultural living you can see how it would it, that should make us stick out in in the world around us it makes us look different now and and so as citizens of heaven we we should stand out yes we we may adopt some of the some of the ways of earth if they're morally neutral and so Folks that have lived overseas or even if you've tra- traveled to other cultures, you, generally it's wise to sort of accommodate the culture in, in, in ways that, again, are, are rather neutral. And you don't, you don't want to just bring all of your Americanisms and just kind of expect everybody else to adjust to you. That's not a great way to live in a culture. And so certainly we, we have our version of that, even as citizens of heaven, so as to not unnecessarily offend uh, people around us but we but we do live according to different standards with different aims with different perspectives and so we don't we shouldn't measure success by the square footage of our houses we don't or measure success by the number of options that we have in our cars the by the by the size of our retirement accounts by the um, quality of the cuisine that we eat by the extravagance of our vacations, by the fashionableness of our wardrobes, by the level of our physical fitness that we're able to achieve in this life. That's not what determines for us success because our view of life is different from the world. It's biblical. And so we we say everything that exists now, everything that is, everything that's going on now, everything I'm going through is, is a journey towards preparation for What's to come? We're exiles. We're sojourners. And so we don't, get, we don't get too attached to the land that we're passing through. We shouldn't be. We always have the destination in mind. And, and, and we look forward to getting there soon. So, yes, we, we can 
As sojourners, we can stop and admire the beauty along the way. I mean, just like if you're traveling cross-country, you may stop and you may see some things and say, wow, that's really, that's really neat, that's impressive. But you, are, you have a destination, you're getting there. And so it is for us. We, we never fully unpack our bags. We don't stop at a hotel for the night and get some rest and then just you know, bring everything and set up our house in the hotel room. for. No, we, 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 we're moving, we're going forward. We have this transient mentality that affects how we do life on this trip. Um, to heaven. So do you live like that? Do you, do you live like a sojourner in a foreign land? Or do you live like a permanent citizen of this world? What's your goal of, for your life? What are, what are your goals? What's your functional, what was your functional goal this past week? If you really were honest, how do you evaluate what's a good day, what's a good week, what's a bad day, what's a bad week? What is it that you're wanting from your job, from your relationships, from your finances? What are you looking for from those things? Again, this, this all comes from this perspective. And we, we need this mindset, beloved, as strangers, as sojourners, as exiles. This is, there's, a, there's a way we need to live. There's a way we need to think. Life, this life is a journey. It's a passage. This isn't home. Home is coming. We are sojourners in exile. So that's the first thing. Live like sojourners in a foreign land. Now second, we get to the, the command, the first command in these verses. And I say it this way. Fight like soldiers in a war zone. Fight like soldiers in a war zone. So Peter talks about this war that's raging against us. And, and it's one that we must be engaged in. It's not, it's not a war against things around us or people around us. It's not a culture war. It's not a religious war. Fundamentally, the war that Peter's talking about is a war with our own flesh. And look at, look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, here it is, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So these, there are these Fleshly passions waging war against our very soul. So what do we do then? Well, there's the command. Abstain. Abstain from them. So a couple things to note. One, there is a war being waged. There is a war being waged. Not a single battle, not a little skirmish, but this ongoing, sustained, aggressive campaign. There is a war. Don't be blind to that. Don't think we're living in peacetime. We're living in wartime. Secondly, there, this war is waged against our very souls. The soul is the, it's the inner person. It's the real you. It's the total person. It's the core of who we are. That immaterial part of us that will last forever. We are not simply bodies, bones, and, 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 and it's not that we have this immaterial soul, eternal soul. And this is the, this is what the war is being waged against. Third, the war is waged by fleshly passions. So passions of the flesh are what wage war against our souls. So what's a passion? I know that word, we hear it thrown around and it's used often. But it's just, as Peter describes, he's talking about kind of a powerfully motivating, emotionally charged desire. That's a, that's a passion. 
And it's a passion of the flesh. It's not, not body, skin, like we think flesh like that, but, but our sinful nature. The old, the old me, the old man. The, 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 these are the, the passions of the flesh, or some of your translations say uh, fleshly lust. I mean, it, it includes, we think, when we hear fleshly lust, we think like sexual desires. And it includes that, but it's not limited to that. One commentator just describes it this way. All, all kinds of self-seeking, whether directed toward wealth, power, or pleasure. That's what we're talking about. This, these, these passions of the flesh, they're waging war, ongoing, aggressive warfare against our souls. So every single believer faces this lifelong struggle against these flash, fleshly passions, waging war against our souls, Theologically, we know, yes, every, uh, the, the, the penalty of sin has been paid in full by Christ for us who are in Jesus. The, the power of sin has been broken. But the, the presence of sin remains. And, and it fights against us. And it's warring against us. And what's the purpose of, uh, of this war? The purpose of any war? It's winning. It wants to win. And, and, and winning really only has one purpose in this context. It's control. It's, it's, it's a war raging against us for control of our souls, for the control of the real us. And, and what controls our souls, our, our, our inner man, the, the core of our being, it controls our words, it controls our behavior. But the war is fought in that level of the inner man. And so there's this war of desire fought on the turf of our minds and our hearts, every... the, the, the for, for control of our souls, our very souls. That's the image. Well, don't, don't be oblivious to that. As believers, it's not, it's not fought for the ultimate destiny of our souls. That's not, that's not what he's saying. But that's already been settled. Peter has made that very clear. We are kept by the very power of God until we receive the inheritance that is ours. So it's not that. But you, but you need to see this, this battle is about more than just simply our words, the words we say or the things we do. It's deeper than that. It's a war of desires, of passions. And it's fought on a couple of fronts as we see that, passions of the flesh. Think, think, think in a couple of ways. One, it's, the, it's, it's fought on the front of evil desires. Those, those evil desires, those things that are clearly outside of God's revealed will, but we... We still battle and they wage war against us. Those, those fleshly passions that God has expressly prohibited that are just wrong. What does that look like? I mean, there's all kinds of examples. It, I'm tempted to lie about something at work so I can gain favor with my boss. And so I can get a promotion and maybe earn more money. That's a, that's a fleshly passion. I'm tempted to gaze at a woman at Target now, just recognizing her beauty, but taking that in and letting that recognition of beauty morph into a moment of lust. And, and as I allow my mind to go places it shouldn't go, and my, my, um, my, my I'm considering things I shouldn't be considering, that's, that's fleshly passion, evil desires. That's, that's warfare against my soul. So for most of us, we think spiritual warfare, our, our definitions, our thoughts about spiritual warfare aren't mundane enough. 
we have these kind of grandiose images and, you know, Frank Peretti kind of scenes for those that grew up in the 80s and 90s of spiritual warfare and like like it's the it's the Christian in handcuffs, you know, strapped to a chair with a knife to his throat, deny Jesus or die. And like that's spiritual warfare. It's these dramatic evil assaults or something in the culture. And But listen, spiritual warfare, it takes place in the grocery store checkout line and in the minivan and in the dorm room when you're alone. And in your cubicle at work. It, it, it's just in the normal domains of everyday life where we're faced with all kinds of temptations where sinful desires and passions, our fleshly passions, are waging war against our souls. It's the temptation to gossip about a friend because it's just so exhilarating. To share that juicy tidbit of information with someone else. That's an that's a evil desire. That's war. Do, do you realize, brothers and sisters, you're living in a war zone? Are you living like a soldier? Are you aware of the assault that's just constantly being brought against you? It happens... At bedtime, parents, doesn't it? (laughs) It's 11 o'clock at night. You're headed off to bed and you hear down the hallway voices of your precious children arguing with one another. They were supposed to be asleep an hour ago. And you hear them arguing in beds and you're plotting what you're going to say as you start stomping down that hallway and you're getting more and more wound up with every step you take. It's like slow motion in movies, you know, boom. Boom, as you go down that hallway and you know you're not there to be a loving ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something satisfying, albeit very momentarily, about busting in that room and screaming at them and telling them, making sure they know how hard they are making your life in that moment. That's a passion of the flesh. That's an evil desire. It's warring against your soul. Husband, it's warfare. When you're tempted to do whatever it takes to win the argument with your wife. And you know you're not opting for the love and the unity and the nurture and the understanding and the care that the Lord has called you to as a husband. There's something exciting about winning. Again, temporarily. But no wife ever walks away after being verbally pinned to the wall and says, how thankful I am for the man of God that he's given to me. (laughs) How thankful I am for this husband. No, man, that's a fleshly passion, desire, evil desire that's warring against your soul. I mean, all of us. And we, we, it shows up so often in times of conflict and, and we're, in a, we're having an argument. We, get, we, have to, we have to stop. We have to think. We have to ask ourselves, why, why am I fighting about this? Why am I arguing? Why, why am I so angry? I mean, James deals with this, doesn't he? 
But most likely, and James loses this, it's because of there's some fleshly desire, some fleshly passion. There's this powerfully motivating, emotionally charged desire in me that I'm craving in that moment. There's something I intensely want, and I'm being denied that. And I'm like a mother bear who's been robbed of her cubs. I will do whatever it takes to... To get what I want in that moment. And if somebody's standing in my way, I'll fight, I'll oppose them. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on with examples. And, and listen, these truths that we're seeing in First Peter, they've got to live where we live. They've got to, they've got to, you've got to see that. But listen, the, the battle for the heart, it's not fought in these kind of three to four grand moments of life, these defining moments. That's where the warfare takes place. No, it's, it's fought for the heart in 10,000 little moments. And maybe it's even being waged right now as you're listening to me. So there's, the, there's a couple fronts. There's the front of those evil desires that we identify and say, that's sinful, I can't even defend that, but I still struggle, I still give in, and I still let that fleshly desire, it's wages war against me and I give in to it. Instead of abstaining from. But then there's also the front of inordinate desire. Of inordinate desire. Excessive desire. And there, there, there are desires in us that may not be sinful by themselves. But they have this ability to kind of morph in our hearts. Uh, yesterday's desire becomes today's demand. And today's demand becomes tomorrow's need. And, and, and this is how it is. That's the battle of inordinate desire. Even good, morally neutral desires can, can, cannot be allowed to rule our lives, our hearts. So Paul Tripp, he talks about this and, and um, how people change. He says, a, a, a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing. That's, that's what we're talking about. Because our hearts are only to be ruled by King Jesus and so to let any other desire rule there. So is, what does this look like? If you're a woman and you get comfort out of a clean and orderly house, that's a good thing. That's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But that desire must not rule and control you. Or, or it will become this idolatrous thing that wages war against your very soul. If you, if you want to be successful in the workplace, men and women... That, that's a good desire, but that desire must not be, become your functional God. And you, you do everything in your life to serve it. If you want to be successful in, in academics, students, that's a good thing. You should work hard. You should, you should want to have academic success. But that desire must not become inordinate and excessive and begin to rule your heart, fighting for the control of your very soul. So, so it can be evil desires and it can be inordinate desires. Good desires become bad gods they, when they control our hearts. And, so, and we, have, we have, as sinners, the capability to turn anything into a God replacement. Anything into an idol. We, the, the, the possibilities are endless. We can worship anything. By, and by worship, I don't mean candles and cathedrals and you know, organ music and that sort of stuff. But I, I just mean street-level worship. This is what we were talking about last week. We, we, can, we can attach our identity and our meaning and purpose to, to something other than God. We can look to get from something that God made 
uh, something that only God was ever designed to provide. So we can, we can have all kinds of functional God replacements. Maybe it's the respect and appreciation of another person or of a, a group of people that you, you, you find so important to you. And so you, you just ride the roller coaster of, your, of their responses to you or their opinions of you. And if they're favorable, oh, life's good. If, if they begin to think poorly of you, then, oh, life's going to end. Maybe it's physical possessions that are becoming too important for you. Listen, ministry can be a God replacement. And this pastor knows that full well. It's a temptation. The stuff of ministry and, and a job as a pastor, and this can be a this can be usurp the, the the ruling place that God has designed and for my life. It always leads to disaster. It always leads to disappointment. So we have these. Okay, back to the, the main road. We have these fleshly passions, and they could be evil desires. They could be just inordinate, inordinate excessive desires. But they're they're waging war against us. Our very souls. Our life is is is. is we live in a war zone. So what do we do, soldiers? What does he say? There's the word, the command here: abstain from them. Abstain. Abstain, and it just means to, to constantly, that's the grammar here, present tense, abstain, constantly hold yourself back from something, from this. It's not just a one time or an occasional, uh, no, I better pass this time. You know, I don't, I, 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 everything in moderation, but it's, it's not moderation, it's not just taming those fleshly passions and trying to, to work work harder at controlling them so they don't get out of control in your life and really become disruptive so people actually see that I have this, this, this fleshly passion. That's not it. The word is abstain. No, don't give in. Are you fighting as a soldier in this war against your soul by abstaining from the passions of the flesh? Do you live with this wartime mentality? That's, that's the question before us. And remember... Peter is exhorting believers. He's talking to Christians. He's telling them, abstain from fleshly passions. Being a growing Christian just doesn't destroy that strong inward pull towards self-will and towards sin in our lives. However long we live on this earth, we will, we will have to keep battling to abstain from these evil and inordinate passions of the flesh. But note this, listen. You are able to, and you are responsible to, in Christ, obey this command to abstain. Because you've been born again to a living hope, think of all that we've seen in First Peter, because you have Christ's resurrection life in you, because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, because the grace of God is actively at work in you, you can, sustain, you can abstain. And in the light of that, you must. It's not going to be easy. It will be struggle. Constant struggle, but God hasn't commanded something of us that he also hasn't enabled us to obey. And so, he says, first, you, you live as a sojourner. This is not your home. Don't put your deep roots down here. Don't unpack your bags. Live with the mindset that's just fixed on eternity. That's, you're moving towards a destination. 
And as we live here as sojourners, we also have to live like soldiers. We have to fight like soldiers in a war zone. We have these fleshly passions that are warring against our souls. And we, we've got to resist. We've got to join the resistance. Abstain from them. For the sake of your souls. And then third, he says behave we can say it this way, behave like spokespersons in a public space. Behave like representatives. Keep your conduct, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, again, this is another one of those big words that we've seen already in, in, in First Peter over and over. In both of his letters, he uses his conduct or behavior. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, and We'll see it again in chapter 3 in a few places. And, and so it just refers to, to your way of life, the overall uh, lifestyle uh, that you have. Our conduct is to be kept honorable among the Gentiles, among the unbelieving world. Honorable, just the idea here is beautiful, it's attractive, it's, it's winsome, it's, it's excellent. That's the idea of, of honorable. Honorable before whom? For God. Keep it, keep it honorable. Live in a way that honors God, that pleases God, that, that brings glory to God. Live, a, live with an understanding that your life no longer belongs to you, that you, you have, by God's grace, you've been given, uh, God's grace has, has, has given you over not to your own wants and desires and needs and feelings, but he's, he, 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 God has given you um, His grace to make His plans. His purposes, His desires supreme. Live honorably before God. And this, this, this ministry is living honorably before God in, in this unbelieving world as representatives, as spokespersons. It's, it's as mundane and normal and everyday as you can make it. So don't, again, don't think in these, these singular moments or these grand stages where I have an opportunity to do some, you know, incredible uh, good deed before the world that, that is honorable to God. It's just a normal life. There is never a place you'll be, listen, there's never a place you'll be, brothers and sisters, where you're, you're, there's never a moment you'll live, not on vacation, not when you're working, not in the community, not when you're traveling overseas, not when you're shopping, not when you're golfing, no matter what you do. There's never a moment that you're not called to live as God's representative. This is, this is who we are. Your life belongs to Him. You're placed by the sovereign work of God in the particular places that you are to be His spokesperson, to be His representative. That's a... It's a noble calling. And all of us have been called to this ministry. And what's the nature of the ministry here? It's, it's, it's the apologetic of a transformed life. So see, see it again in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... Now just stop there. Peter, Peter isn't so naive as to think that our good deeds and the, the good things we do will be met with applause and instant conversion. And oh, wow, if they just, if they just have the... The, the, the witness of our life, then they're just going to come flooding in. That's not what he's talking about. But instead, out of jealousy, out of guilt, out of a host of other kind of motivations and fleshly passions, they, they may speak evil against us, and they will at times. 
I mean, this was happening in the early church. Just take it into the context of Peter's day and even prior to this time. The early believers in those meeting in these secret church meetings, they were accused of, of all kinds of things. They were accused of cannibalism. Because here they are talking about eating this man's flesh and drinking his blood. And you know, what in the world is that about? And so those were some of the accusations. They were accused of immorality, even incest, because they have this deep affection for one another, this love for one another that, that stood out in that culture. And they're talking to one another and calling one another brothers and sisters. This family language. And so they were accused of immorality. They were accused of being atheists because they refused to worship the emperor. They were accused of being just bad for business. They had, remember the silversmiths in Ephesus and Acts 19. They were accused of breaking up families because, uh, again, their, their, new, their faith in Christ and their devotion to him, it was causing families to be torn apart as, as, as wives were being divorced and as children were being disowned. And, and, and Jesus said that this very thing would happen. And so... He says, when they speak against you as evildoers, though, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They, they, they may see, and, and this is used only here and in chapter 3, verse 2. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. This is not just a glancing, not just a noticing, huh, I saw that. I saw that happen today. I saw you, I saw you pay it forward at uh, the Starbucks line and pay for the person's drink behind you or something like that. Like, wow, I'm going to become a Christian now. That's not what he's, that's not what he's talking about. It's, it's, it's long-term, careful, reflective observation. They're, they're, they're watching. They're, people, unbelievers, they're watching your life, even though you may not realize it and you're not aware of it. People see how you, how you react to things at work. They see, notice how you talk about others. If you're vocal about your Christianity. They observe how you deal with problems. They are aware of how you treat your family. They're aware of how you spend your time and your money. And they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now what's the day of visitation? Um, It could be the day of conversion. God coming near. God visiting and conversion. Saving these pagans. Or or it could be that future day of judgment. And I think, in Peter's theology, it, ta- it makes more sense to, to, to speak of the day of visitation as being that day when Jesus returns to earth. The day of judgment. It will be good news for believers. It will be bad news for everybody else. But Peter says, live so that unbelievers will glorify God on that day. Now, how can unbelievers glorify God then? Well... Some will be converted before that day and, and they'll trust in Christ and in part because they observe the good deeds of Christians that they persecuted. And so in that sense, they'll, they'll be reveling in the grace of God and glorying and, and glorifying God in that way. And others will, they'll watch us and they'll not believe in the gospel. It happens all the time. But on that day, they will, they will have no excuse and 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 they will be forced to glorify God anyway. They they will stand before the Lord with every excuse for their unbelief and for their rebelliousness knocked out from under them. And they will, with once defiant knees and once proud tongues, 
bow their knees and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so they will glorify God in the day of visitation. And so for us, as Peter writes to these believers who are suffering and who are being ostracized by the community around them and who are, being, who are considered to be outcasts and they're alienated and they're cut off, and, and he says, dear brother and sister in Christ, you may face ridicule now, but you will be vindicated later. You suffer now, but there will be glory later. And so we are, we, we, we live as sojourners in a foreign land. We fight as soldiers against the fleshly passions that war against our souls as we live in this war zone. And we, and we, um, we are, we are representatives, we're spokespersons for God in the public space. We, we who are ostracized, alienated, scattered, discarded by the world are actually representatives of God. And, and with, with the aim for God's glory. What a great calling. Well, if we could summarize the, the passage in just a couple statements. Just one... Live with a destination mentality. Live with, this is not it. This is not the end. Today is not the destination we're passing through. Second, live with a wartime mentality. And third, live with a gospel mentality. So, so we believe in eternity, and that structures how we approach life here and now. We believe in the ravages of sin, and so that makes us serious about the war that's being waged against our souls and, and is being still fought in our hearts. And, we, and we're serious about evil desire and we're serious about idolatrous, inordinate desires. And we believe in the glorious work of the Redeemer, so we, we want to live in a way that we can be part of this work and depict the very the, the power of His transforming grace in our lives. This is, this is what ought to define us. So Peter is going to, he's going to later in this, in this letter, he's going to talk about those people who will, who will actually come to these believers and will ask them about the hope that they have. And so it's like, it's like reverse evangelism. It's the evangelized going to the evangelist. And, and, and because they're intrigued, they're attracted by this, this hope that they have in life and the nature of that hope. And they, they say, I, I don't understand what makes you tick. I, I, I don't understand why you're so loving and kind and forgiving. Um, you're hopeful. You're courageous. What's going on? And that... And so, so we live in a way that that's even possible. That we live like a sojourner in a foreign land. We fight like a soldier in this war zone. We, we behave like a spokesperson in the public space. And, and, and this, listen to this. I, I, I don't want to leave this passage. I can't leave this passage without noting that this passage in every way points to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you're already seeing this. But if not, consider this. He was the ultimate exile sojourner. Birds have nests. Foxes have holes. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was willing to be a reject. He was willing to come to a place that was not his home. He was willing to face injustice and betrayal and to be alienated in this world. Why? Because he had this destination mentality. He had this final goal of the redemption of sinners, of calling his children to himself. He did that willingly. He was the ultimate sojourner. He was the ultimate soldier. 
He gave his life to conquer sin and death. He, he, Paul says in Colossians, true that, Colossians 2 that he triumphed over his enemies at the cross. He's the soldier of soldiers. And also, he lived every way as a spokesperson, as a representative of the Father who sent him. He's the ultimate spokesperson. Again and again, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. I've, I've only come to do one thing, to do my Father's will. And so listen, I, Jesus didn't come and do all that simply as your example. He did all of that as your substitute. You and I will never be able to stand before God one day and say, you know what, I lived as an elect exile wonderfully, God. Look at me. I, I, I was a good soldier, wasn't I, God? That's not, and so if you've had, no matter what kind of week you've had, you don't come in here and you say, man, I've been a good soldier. I've been abstaining from those sinful passions that are warring against my soul. Go me. We don't, we don't, we won't have that ability to stand, but in every single way, Lord, I have been a great spokesperson of yours. It's not the hope that we will be able to muscle that up and be able to create that in ourselves. No, we all fall short of this call. So Jesus, the exile, the soldier, the spokesperson, the representative, is the only place where you and I can ever find hope. But we have it. He's done it. Well, just, perhaps you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus. And so, this is for you. I, I say to you, there is, there's no life, there's no satisfaction, there's no joy, there's no sturdy and lasting hope for you outside of Jesus. Seek Him. He will not turn you away. Call upon Him today. Talk with one of us. We would love to share more about this, but I don't want that opportunity to pass by. Let me pray. Lord, what an incredible summary of the gospel life to which you've called us. It's a, it's a reminder of the home that you have prepared for us and that we're moving towards. It's a, it's a warning of the war that still rages in our hearts. And it's a call to once again live as your representatives, spokespersons, in the public square. Lord, we know we've failed on all three accounts. So we cast ourselves upon you, our fellow exile, and you, our fellow soldier, and you, our fellow spokesperson, the Lamb, the Savior, the King, Emmanuel, Jesus. And we would ask you to forgive us. And we would ask you to empower us and to enable us that we might live as you have called us to live. Thank you for Jesus who has gone before us, who paid the price for us. We rest in him. We look to him. In Jesus' name, amen.